Hi there, it's Melvin. Just wanted to take a moment to thank the team over at Thryzer for supporting this month's podcast sessions. Thryzer is a payment platform that you have to check out if you are a private pay therapist and accepting out-of-network benefits. It basically helps clients save on therapy up front. Thryzer can help verify a client's out-of-network benefit ahead of the first session so that they get transparency up front on what their out-of-pocket costs will be. I'll tell you more about Thryzer here in the middle of our session, but if you go to sellingthecouch.com forward slash Thryzer, you actually end, then enter the code STC upon sign up, you get your first $2,500 in fees waived. Again, that's over at sellingthecouch.com forward slash Thryzer, and be sure to enter the promo code STC. So we'll jump right into today's podcast session. Hello there. Welcome to session 90 of Selling the Couch. We are at 90 episodes. This is so crazy. It has been quite a journey getting up to 90 episodes, and I'm just so grateful for you for continuing to support the podcast and the blog. We had some pretty big milestones in the blog, actually, this past week, the blog and the podcast. The podcast did 150,000 overall downloads, and this past month, we went over 14,000 downloads Um, which is just simply amazing. I never would have guessed this when I started this. And the blog hit 6,000 visitors last month. The Selling the Couch Facebook community is continuing to grow. We're about to hit 2,500 members. And the STC email list, which you can get on at sellingthecouch.com forward slash tax, gives um it gives you a tax write-off checklist that I created and that you can download but that just hit 2000 members so it's been wonderful and in just amazing to see the growth and I'm just so grateful for you and for your support today's podcast is with Dr. Jessica Dolgan Jessica is a psychologist And she's also one of the founders of Therapy Partner, which is an electronic health record. But I wanted to have Jessica on the podcast to talk about the trends in the field of healthcare and where the industry is going and how that applies to us as mental health providers and as private practitioners. So more specifically, we're going to talk all about all the wisdom that Jessica has gleaned. So we're going to cover things like what are the three biggest trends that Jessica has noticed when it comes to the area of healthcare and how that's relevant to us in the mental health field. We're going to talk a little bit about Jessica's private practice journey, what motivated her to get started in private practice, and what's most surprised her about being on this private practice journey. We're going to talk about this idea of the mind-body connection and how that trend in society just generally having a an interest in the mind-body connection and mind-body health, how that's relevant for us in the field, and some of the ways that you can start to strategically think about aligning your private practice in that way. 
This episode is chock full of really practical information. If you'd like to follow along on the show notes, you can find that at sellingthecouch.com forward slash session nine zero. So, but we'll get right to it. So here is my conversation with Dr. Jessica Dolgan from therapypartner.com. Hey, Jessica, welcome to Selling the Couch. Hi, Melvin. How are you? I'm doing well. It's uh, good to connect. So folks don't know this, but uh, uh, we actually did this interview the first time and (laughs) I had an epic fail on my computer and apple cider vinegar, keyboard, bad combo. Um, But I'm so glad that we can reconnect and and talk about where the mental health field is going and all the trends that you see in it. Yeah, absolutely. I'm happy to do it. Happy to be involved. You know, um, you started out as a group private practitioner, and I wanted to start there. Uh, What initially motivated you to start in private practice? You know, I think that when I was in graduate school, most of my training was with a a group practice owner at the time. Mm -hmm. So I got a really good opportunity to kind of watch how group practices were running, um, take a look at all of the administrative issues and also the patient care issues. I suspected, you know, I, I, I trained at Children's Hospital and came up as a child and adolescent psychologist, and I had always suspected that I wanted to do private practice, so I started very early in graduate school, actually, with my practice, and then converted over once um, I had graduated, and I, I've, I think I've always been very taken with um, the group practice concept, and I think that's primarily because, because of my work with adolescents. I felt like there were very few... Um, a branded or expertise-based clinics just for adolescents, especially ones that were multidisciplinary in any way. And as a child psychologist, you know, our pediatric model is really strong. You know, you develop a relationship with a pediatrician and then you stay with that pediatrician for the life of your child. And I felt like we were really missing that in psychological services. And I wanted to create, you know, my private practice, our group practices in an old Victorian home. And there's a, there's, there's a women's loan that's available through the Mayor's Office of Economic Development here in Colorado um, to start a business in a historically revitalized area or an area that needs help. So we bought this old, you know, vintage home. And what I really wanted to do is create a, a lifelong place for children to kind of grow up who need psychological services and um, whether that's, you know, more urgently um, or just, you know, normal developmental services. I like the idea of working in a group and wanted them to have, um, I really wanted to screen for long-term practitioners who would join the group and literally just like your pediatrician, that we would be there kind of for the life of the family. So um, I'm really taken with providing families with comprehensive services all in one location that they're really comfortable with. Um, and that's really like palatable to them. And just as a business person in general, I'm, I think I'm, I I would call myself bordering on obsessed with kind of consumer experience. And I really wanted to create a a place where patients and families felt really comfortable. I think my experience in graduate school and working in different community health settings and other practices was that, you know, sometimes the eye isn't on creating a client, like what I call a client-centric environment. And so I really wanted a place where families could come. And I also wanted to have control over um, creating uh, a scholarship foundation. Uh, I, I really, um, Melvin, had a, have struggled with feeling that um, those that have less money are often served, at least in, for psychological services. 
in areas that um, areas or buildings or environments that just aren't as conducive to healing. Hmm. So I wanted to create an environment where you know money is really not not the object. There are plenty of patients that come here who pay full rate and plenty of patients who come here who could not um, afford these services otherwise. And so I, I think maybe the reason I became interested in it was because I, I personally enjoy the building. I, I actually wanted to create the physical space and then bring in the right doctors and, and create an environment where people would feel comfortable. I, and also, I think it's very good for clinicians to spend time together. Right. I think it lowers our liability. I think it's really good for us emotionally and socially. I think it impacts uh, patient care to have good care coordination. So um, I, 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 I'm really, really extroverted. I don't think I would have ever made it in private practice by myself. I need my colleagues around me. Mm. So I think I was probably driven around that too. I think it would have been too isolating for me personally. How in the world did you have the foresight to like think through all of that while you were in grad school? Because the last thing like that was, that's probably the last thing on my mind. I was like more about psychological <laughs> theories and making sure I don't ask closed questions and making sure oh. questions are open-ended. And oh, Melvin, I had the exact same problem. I mean, I, I was teasing in, in uh, you know, an intern the other day about how hard it is to separate theory and practice and that I mm. felt totally stifled for the first couple of years that I practiced because mm. I was so cognizant of everything that came out of my mouth and not wanting to make a mistake because I hadn't quite integrated theory and practice yet or really found my own rhythm mm. or, or way to be with patients. Honestly, the only reason I thought about it, Melvin, was that I started looking at jobs. Mm. So in graduate school, I worked for a group practitioner, so that worked. You know, I was his intern, and so I got to see patients there. So I started thinking about staying with him. He had a, a, a very interesting practice, but his specialty wasn't something I felt like I could stay with. So I started thinking about doing it on my own. And I'd love to tell you that I had like some sort of entrepreneurial foresight, but I also think a lot of it was financially driven. I had a great deal of student loans and I, uh, I, I think I became very cognizant somewhere around like year three that all of the jobs that I was going to start looking for would not be able to support my lifestyle. if just living expenses hmm. and my student payments. I started looking at what the monthly payments were going to be, and I started thinking about how I was going to need to supplement um, my income before I'd even graduate. I'm like, I'm not going to be able to make it in one of the hospital jobs. Um, it won't cover everything. Yeah. Um, so, I, mean, and, it's and I, think, well, I mean, it's amazing to have like that, that amount of foresight and, and realize that. And, and then not only just realize that, but I think the bigger thing is actually take concrete steps to accomplish what you wanted to. Yeah. I have a best friend that I went to graduate school with and he's very entrepreneurial too. And I think uh, it was very good for us to spend time together uh, throughout the process. You know, I got to observe a lot of private practitioners who were supervising me mm. and then also work in this group practice. And um, I, I, I tend to be somebody who tries to use whatever data I have around me to to just assist me in things. And so when I went to go write my dissertation, I actually did not write my dissertation on a clinical topic. Yeah. I tried to write my dissertation. The first submission was on um, mental health care financing. Yeah. I wanted to come to understand why you could finance your children's braces or your eye surgery, but you can't, um, you can't get a loan for psychological services, even if you have like a child with prodromal schizophrenia. I mean, this is like a huge expense for a family. So when I went to go look at the literature, Melvin, I realized not only was there no literature on financing mental health, there wasn't even any literature really on business of mental health. 
So I backed up the topic and I went to the team, uh, you know, your, your team. And I said, can I write a dissertation on private practice inefficiency and business problems among clinicians? Because of course I've been working for a private practitioner, observing all these things and all these incredible psychologists who impact people's lives and sit in rooms every day, like working with people who are really struggling and that yet they're, they were financially struggling and struggling themselves too. And of course there's a, a, a suicide rate in our profession. I became quite obsessed with how we run our businesses. So my dissertation was actually on private practice inefficiencies. That's very interesting. So you said you, when you were, you know, an intern and you had a lot of private practitioners that you observed and supervised you, what would you say are the key business lessons that you took away from those private practitioners? You know, the biggest ones that I think that I observed right out of the gate was, um, and my team here likes to laugh at me about how often I say this phrase, and it probably should be tattooed or something on me, but I say it all the time. The entire healthcare field, in my opinion, is replete with redundancy. Mm. And um, it, it happens all the way at the hospital level. If you think about checking in, you know, you check in with one person, you pay another person, another person sends you a statement, you know, it's just is replete with repetitive, like looking for one patient at a time and doing administrative function. So this was the first thing I noticed was that these practitioners didn't get an opportunity to just be with patients. I heard the same things they said over and over again to me. I love my patients. I hate the business. I love my patients. I hate the business. They said things to me that like, I have a, I seemingly have, for whatever reason, totally unhelpful, a memory for things. They would say things like, when I talked about like retirement, sometimes I'd ask them questions like, what do you, will you be doing this your whole career? Would you mind if I ask you some questions? They'd all say the same thing, like I'm going to die in my chair or Mm -hmm. I would watch the same struggles that they had. So these are clinicians with high skill level who are amazing with patients. They've been blessed with intuition and insight and then taking this time to get this education so that they can help people through the most important kind of times in their life. And they're completely overwhelmed with like very basic business procedures like scheduling and billing. And I realized they just didn't have any, they really had very few resources like a podcast like you have just like frankly wasn't available to them and they didn't have business books. And I, I, I think the biggest observation that I made was in our field, there's an insinuation that if you graduate, that means that you can run a small business. Mm. If you can, if you say you want to be in private practice, you can, you can hang a shingle and it's insinuated that you should somehow know. I talk to clinicians all the time now who like seemingly feel embarrassed that they don't know exactly how to handle their business, but they didn't go to business school and they're two very, very separate issues. Um, And I just noticed how much strain was on them. Uh, financial strain, administrative strain, how much redundancy and like poor streamlining was occurring in these businesses. I think those were my primary, and they just didn't seem as happy as they could to me as people for doing such, what I thought was such remarkable work that, I mean, many of the people who are listening here know there's really few words to describe it. No one can really observe us in our work because of confidentiality, but everyone who's on your podcast series, including me, knows what it feels like to really feel incredibly connected to a patient or to watch a patient come in very ill and to watch the process of having them get better. It's like really quite magical and a blessing to have that career, but they're completely distracted by things that I I felt really motivated to try to help them not have to deal with. And the mid-sized healthcare market, right where clinicians fall in these kind of private practices, in my opinion, in the entire healthcare industry is the most overlooked. Hmm. Well, I wanted to ask you because that was like one of my next questions. You've been in the field for 
a long time. And I wanted to ask you just what do you see are the three biggest trends in the world of healthcare and more specifically that's relevant to us as private practitioners? Let's see, the three biggest, you know, I think one of the biggest trends that I see that's happening right now, which I'm very, very happy to see, is the public's preoccupation and interest in the mind-body health connection. Mm -hmm. So I think where you and I are right now and the listeners, we're in like a very pivotal place for mental health. Never before has the public been pursuing Mm -hmm. self-help material at this level. That's true, Uh, right? Like Yes, they're, they're, yeah. I mean, you. I mean, the practical thing is, you walk into a bookstore, you go to Amazon, you've got entire bookshelves on self-help. Right. That's exactly what I say when I'm giving lectures. Mom, it's really funny that you say that. I'm like, walk into a Barnes and Noble, there's four aisles. It's almost as big as the children's section. Mm-hmm. It's all self-help. I, I secretly uh, watched one of your lectures. No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> It's okay. It's okay. Yeah, I t- yeah, I, t- I talk about this, and it, it is really true. You know, um, I think all of us are quite taken um, with the mind body health connection. I always say that when we've really arrived, people will stop saying mind body health. Hmm. That finally, the brain will be absorbed into the remainder of body health. I, I always I, I like to say when I'm working with patients or giving lectures uh, around my practice that the brain is the only organ that exhibits judgment. And because of that, I think it's been separated from the body. You know, we don't talk about kidney and body health. (laughs) We talk about mind-body health, but the brain is an organ and it's attached to the rest of our body. Mind-body health is an improvement over ignoring the brain completely. Um, But I'd love to get to a place where we see this as one comprehensive uh, unit. So one, I think the public is becoming quite enamored with living a... um, intentioned life, um, understanding the power of like cognition, behavioral change, um, understanding kind of global health principles regarding how they feed themselves, how they talk to themselves, how they teach their children. Um, And I think that they're becoming more interested in leading examined lives Mm. and, and the benefits that come from that. You know, some of these most, you know, prolific online series and journals and that people are following. And and I feel like Oprah is like such a great example of this. I mean, she is a person who decided to talk about psychological well-being from the jump right out of the gate, almost in every show. She started an entire magazine. A lot of it is related to that. And I believe it has a lot to do with why she became so popular Mm. um, because she was a spokesperson for this. So there's that. Um, I also think that if at least this impacts the mid-sized healthcare marketplace, there is more technology available for mid-sized practitioners now than there has ever been, and they are absorbing the use of technology to complement their businesses um, at like alarming rates. Whether that's people using technology to do, you know, sur- you know, surgeons are using this to do surgery in rural areas. Clinicians are using this to run their businesses. They're tuning into something like. Uh, you offer a podcast series like this so they can educate themselves in their free time about how to run an incredible business that really helps patients. So I think they're absorbing uh, technology. And I, the last thing that I see, at least among clinicians, um, that we, we spend time with Melvin is I, I feel like doctors or healthcare professionals more than ever before understand the importance of having some business skill or learning business skills. 
you know, it's really globally bedside manner, but they want to understand how to make patients feel comfortable. They're interested in how you get patients to return for services. They're interested in how to brand themselves or separate themselves from other people that they're working with. How do they have a, a, a unique clinic? How do they advertise or, or market themselves? How do they speak to patients about policies or procedures in a way that patients find palatable and understand? I feel like many, many years ago, these, these literally were not even conversations. And I feel like mid-sized healthcare professionals, whether it's a psychologist or an acupuncturist, the, the, a psychiatrist, they, they are very interested in, um, in in becoming savvier business people, even if for them that means outsourcing some things or using technology or using a business advisor at the very least. I see them even in the 10 years since I've been doing this coming at alarming rates. I mean, when I started, we it was hard to even talk to clinicians about why they would need business assistance. Now we get calls all day about what types of business assistance we might be able to provide them. So that, yes. I'm very excited for that because the truth of the matter, Malvin, is I'm mostly motivated by helping clinicians run really good businesses. And I feel like when they do, our patient care improves. I, I absolutely believe that there's a trickle-down effect between satisfied clinicians, professionally, personally, financially, and good patient care. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, so like, I wanted to dive real quick into like, th both, uh, all three of these real quick. So you said the first one is just interest in mind body connection. So as a private practitioner that's listening, right? What are some ways that would practically translate for them? Right? Like in terms of what folks are seeking? How could they offer services? How could they present their services? I think just supporting the public in that really, you know, it sounds, it, this sounds like a very simple uh, uh, item and a lot of people on the line probably already, already do this, but having really good resources for patients really matters to them. They're interested in books. They're interested in articles. I mean, I think we always, we naturally do this anyway, but having, taking the time to put together a little resource library on your website or handing a particular, you know, sometimes even in our clinical practice here, we started a library. Patients can check books in and out of the library or buy some books in bulk and actually hand them out to, to patients. Um, I think there are more materials available and every clinician knows that if we get patients to work on themselves outside of session, the likelihood of therapeutic success and the prognosis on the whole uh, improves. And so I think that leaning into the fact that the public is actually interested, asking them, have you read about this? Have you heard about a cognitive behavioral strategies? Have you read this type of book? Um, it, it could be very, very helpful, just actually leaning into the fact that the public is interested in those things and directing them to places to do, it doesn't have to be homework. It can just be support resources uh, for, for um uh, for their their work with that clinician. The other thing that I really encourage clinicians to do is every person who listens, Melvin, I find clinicians, they, as a general rule, they're very modest, and almost everybody who's listening has some form of a specialty. I try to encourage clinicians to share that specialty. Mm -hmm. So whatever that niche expertise is, whether that's just writing you know, a 10-point small little article that they send over to pediatric offices or primary care physician offices or OBGYNs, how to identify the following things. Mm -hmm. If you specialize in postpartum disorder, how do you get people to understand those things? How do you, how do you use your information about the mind-body-health connection? There are primary care physicians and high-quality referral sources that are just waiting for us to turn out very basic materials. It doesn't need to cost somebody a lot of money. 
Um, it could be a very, very basic form. I talk about referral cards all the time. Um, clinicians, I think, could use referral cards. They have referral sources, but their number's often kind of buried at the front desk of a medical office. And just simply sending over a referral card to your quality what do, uh, What's a referral card? Yeah, a referral card is 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 uh, just one piece of marketing collateral I usually mm. recommend. So people have a business card, sometimes a website. Mm. And this is a referral card, and the referral card is actually built for patients. Mm. So the referral card is handed to possible referral sources. So let's say you have an OBGYN or a dermatologist or a PCP that you work with or even a psychiatrist that you work with uh, consistently. You're relying on that other person to sell your services or explain what you do. Mm. So somebody goes to the OBGYN, they have postpartum depression. We have to rely on the OBGYN to remember your name, where your office is located, go dig up your card or find your contact information instead of just sending them a pile of small cards that just says, you know, I specialize in early motherhood, postpartum depression issues. Here's a referral card. Should anybody come in with these needs? Here's my commitment to you. You can hand them the card. I will get them a consultation and I will have them sign paperwork right away so that I can get on the phone with you and care coordinate, um, which will improve the, the, their outcome. Uh, in treatment, and uh, you will safely know these people see uh, those referral sources, Melvin, they have hundreds and hundreds of patients, mm -hmm. if not thousands. And so I can't tell you how many times you talk to a referral source, and they're like, I was trying to refer to a clinician, and the voicemail says they're not taking patients, or I couldn't mm -hmm. keep track of who was open and who wasn't. When you send referral cards, they just throw them in a drawer, and it makes it very easy for them to pull it out and say, I think you're struggling with some postpartum depression. This is a doctor where we work with closely. Please give them a call, and please note they'll call me, and we'll work together and try to help you to feel better. That, that, that um, changes so everything. Yeah, no, absolutely, because uh, the underlying thing underneath it is you're providing value. You're not just another business card that's just getting tossed, right? You're actually helping the practice, and if they need the additional support, you become that, that source they go to. I tell people all the time that I think one of the best ways that we all succeed in life is by making ourselves indispensable to other people. Mm -hmm. We develop ways of being that make it so that people could utilize us in some way. And I really encourage clinicians to do the same thing. These doctors have a revolving door triaging problem. If you're seeing that same woman who's showing up with early postpartum depression and you have a little bit of a talk with her, you're busy, you have you know 20 other women that need to be seen, they're waiting in the lobby, they're having babies, uh, you're trying to get her started on some Lexapro, you're trying to do the best you can, you don't have a referral source, that woman's going to come back in three months later and still be unwell. So that doctor has actually not solved the problem. And in actually thinking, I, I always ask clinicians to take our hat off for a little while and put on the problem hat of our referral sources. What are those problems? A school counselor, for example, has the same issue. In a public school, they, you know, the five, six school counselors can't see 4,000 children, mm. um, but they can understand triage. They're like, oh my goodness, this teenager is extremely depressed. I think she might be clinically depressed. I need to triage this out, but where? And so always solving the problem of other business owners is a great way to improve your own business. Yeah, so very wise words. Um, my last question is, you started Therapy Partner with this desire to think about, to think differently about electronic health records. Tell us more about what drives you and tell us a little bit more about Therapy Partner. Well, yeah, I mean, 
therapy partner itself to me is, is at least my attempt and our attempt as a company to shift some of the biggest items that I felt like were impacting private practitioners in our industry. So to me, that involves three primary areas. One, can we give them a piece of technology that pretty much streamlines their business? Um, I talked about redundancy before. I don't think it's necessary to have to find a patient by name, schedule them separately, bill them separately, write a progress note separately, auto, you know, create a statement that you manually send to them. So I became quite obsessed with how to streamline some of these administrative procedures for mid-sized practitioners. How do you give them a piece of technology that's really powerful so you can minimize all this background noise and administrative $20 an hour work that they find themselves totally drained by the hate the business stuff we talked about before. So um, kind of harnessing the power of technology. The second thing is I, I because I kind of do what you do and, and we're in this industry trying to help private practitioners, I wanted to have a free business of practice education division that's part of our technology company. So some of the education that I might've shared today we teach webinars, we give podcast, we have a podcast series, I write articles, all of this is free to our members. And I really think that technology without education for this particular group um, isn't, isn't uh, effective enough. I, I believe I have an industry responsibility to provide as much education as I can to empower clinicians to have better personal and professional satisfaction as well as financial satisfaction. I believe that clinicians that earn more also donate more work. I think that they can actually help more people who are struggling when they're actually doing better themselves. Mm. And then the last item that I really wanted to contribute, so we think of our company as having three divisions, is dedicated support. So I feel like we talked about this at the beginning, some of the isolation. Clinicians tend to go to each other and try to figure out what to do and bounce ideas back and forth, which is great. But I thought to myself, you know, if they're buying a piece of technology, the worst, I, I myself get on a piece of technology, I won't use it if somebody won't help me. And, and help me to understand how to best use it for me, customize it to me. And so I wanted to provide dedicated consultation. I wanted to have not salespeople who sell technology and don't care about clinicians. I wanted to have people who can help them with their practices and help them streamline their business and answer business consulting questions, direct them to the proper education. And so that, that was my intent in starting Therapy Partner. And um, I feel very, very lucky, Melvin. I, I think that, um, you know, with the customers around the country that we work with um, have been so kind to our team and are, are so grateful. We just did the APA conference. It was so fun for us to have our, you know, we had an expo booth there and all these clinicians who use our product from around the country um, came by and we get to meet them face-to-face -face then and have thanked us for the education and the technology. And anyway, that's what I'm personally driven around. I really, really enjoy watching them do better in business and feel safer, more in control of their business, um, psychologically more satisfied themselves and able to focus on what I call business forward activities. I feel like clinicians are constantly kind of chasing their own tail in working on business operations instead of business development. And so the goal is to help them feel like everything is contained. They have the right education, the technology and support to get nice and contained in business, feel like everything's streamlined and safe. And then they can really focus on the 
the, the first question you asked me, which is what kind of practice do you want to build? Mm. Um, what kind of clinic do you want to have? Do you want it to just be you? What is your niche expertise? How do you want to market yourself? What would you like to charge? Is there any, you know, nonprofit and or discount work you would like to do? They're unable to think about these things because they haven't been given the proper support or tools. And so I think my entire career, I, I think my purpose here, at least for this, this lifetime, I guess, is, is to do this. And I enjoy it very much. I feel very grateful that I've gotten the opportunity to. Well, I'm glad that we've been able to connect for sure. Jessica, what are some of the best ways that folks can get in touch with you? Uh, yeah, so if people would like to uh, connect with us at Therapy Partner, they can simply just go to therapypartner.com. So it's Therapy Partner, no S, and or they can call in directly. For folks that are listening through your uh, podcast series, since you're a partner of ours, Melvin, they do get a 60-day free trial of the technology and a dedicated business consultation. So that's a one-hour uh, tech consultation with our team. And we talk to them just about their business and their practice, where they're going with their business, what areas of operation need uh, help. And so you're part of our educational forum. So they can just go straight to therapypartner.com and click contact, or they can call in directly. Our phone number is 1-877-232-9847. And if it's the most convenient for them and they don't want to go to the website, they can just send an email directly just to info at therapypartner.com and they can just say that they listened through your podcast and uh, that they listened to this um, this or any of your podcast series and just let us know and we will make sure that they receive all of the discounts that you've been so kind to offer by, by being part of this podcast series and also make sure that they get boarded up for their business consultation and there's absolutely no obligation. So they don't have to commit to anything. They can take the consultation, absolutely no obligation. Awesome. Jessica, thank you so much for doing this and uh, take good care, okay? All right. Thank you, Melvin. Take care of yourself. It was nice talking to you again. Yeah, likewise. Hi there. Hope you enjoyed my conversation with Jessica. It was so neat to be able to hear about some of the evolving trends just in the healthcare field, but in society in general. I feel like I knew about some of these, but a lot of these I didn't know about, and I hope that was the same for you. Show notes to today's episode can be found again at sellingthecouch.com forward slash session and the number nine zero. If you'd like to continue the conversation on where the healthcare field is going and our role in it, please um, come over to the Selling the Couch community, which you can find at sellingthecouch.com forward slash community. You know, as we have gotten up to 90 episodes, I realize that it has been quite a while since I have done individual episodes and I've, I've learned a lot and have had lots of thoughts recently. And so in some of these coming episodes, I look forward to sharing some of the lessons that I've learned and some of the tips that I've learned more specifically when it comes to things like productivity and morning routines and habits and all sorts of fun stuff that I like to geek out on. So I'm looking forward to sharing those things with you. Have a wonderful rest of your week and thank you again for taking the time to listen. Thanks for listening to the Selling the Couch podcast. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit www.sellingthecouch.com.
So if you've been listening to the STC podcast for a while, or you've been listening to podcasts and you've had this thought of, Mel, I would love to launch my own podcast in order to grow my business. Just wanted to encourage you to check out our free podcasting workshop, which is over at sellingthecouch.com forward slash podcasting workshop. You can basically sign up at a day and a time that works for you. It's 90 minutes. And when I do these workshops or when I record them, I truly believe in the quality teaching, so it's going to be well worth your time. We're going to go through gear recommendations and how to launch strategically and how to think about monetizing your podcast and how to line up your podcast with your existing offers and how to do it strategically and authentically uh, and not salesy and slimy um, and all of those things. So again, the link is over at sellingthecouch.com forward slash podcasting workshop.